going on out there, anesthesia nerds? Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Podcast, where we talk about all things veterinary anesthesia and pain management. Today, I have a really fantastic and exciting guest on with us, um, hopefully for all you people who have been shouting, but what about the birds? What do I do when birds come into my practice? Well, today I have a treat for you because we are joined by Liz Vetrano, who is the supervisor of exotics. Uh, technicians, the exotics department at Mount Laurel Animal Hospital sees all kinds of exotic species, uh, rabbits, ferrets, reptiles, right? Uh, but it has a special interest in birds and in bird anesthesia and pain management. So luckily for us, we're going to talk about birds and how we can treat them to make sure that we're taking care of their pain as effectively as possible. And then maybe talk about, you know, some career opportunities and how you might get started if you also want to do anesthesia and pain management in exotic species. So thank you for joining us, Liz. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right, Liz. So let's talk about the fact that you treat all kinds of species um, in the exotics department where you work, but you do tend to have a soft spot for birds. I think we all just want to know why. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because birds, I gotta tell you, I spent uh, I spent a summer as an intern when I thought I wanted to be a wildlife rehab person, and then I realized there you don't actually make any money in that. And I do like to eat, so. Uh, but in my time with the birds, I was at the Florida Keys Wild Bird Center. So shout out to uh, Laura Quinn and the gang down there. But if you think about birds. My recollection is that birds like to either, if they're really large, like the raptors, um, they're going to try to bite you. And then the small birds just seem to want to die if you look at them strange. So <laughs> what was it about that that made you think, yeah, I want to I want to get in there and work with birds? <laughs> I know, there's something not right with me, I think is the answer. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but yeah, a lot of people ask me that question because that's the thing, right? Is people are either super afraid of them because I think it's the flapping. I'm not really sure. Or it's the movie, The Birds. I don't know if you ever saw it. Alfred Hitchcock, I think, uh, (laughs) scarred a lot of people. For me, I mean, I started out, actually, my first job out of college was being a bird show trainer at Philadelphia Zoo. And um, I still participate in that. So shout out to Fung Lu, who runs uh, Animal Behavior and Conservation Connections, which is this amazing program where they do free flight bird shows and they educate the public on, you know, just bird care in general, bird conservation in general, and really gets to allow people to see birds doing their thing. So that's where I got my start and my love of birds. And then I got more into the vet field. And I just discovered that it was super rewarding to learn all things exotics, because you never stop learning in that. I mean, you don't stop learning in vet med in general, but especially for exotics, like The other day, I placed an Ivy catheter and a bearded dragon for the first time, and I've been doing this for 13 years. So it's always exciting. You know, birds, for me, I just connect with them. I connect with their behavior. I connect just with them on a medical standpoint and just constantly learning all the new things that are coming up with every year. So, um, yeah, they've just been... I, I mean, I'd rather tackle a bird than an aggressive dog any day. So I guess that makes me different, <laughs> which is fine. I'm okay with that. No, listen, I am happy that there are people like you out there. Uh, that makes you know, my job easier. I'm glad that there are people out there, you know, uh, you know, that are equine people. Um, I, I, I got to tell you, there's, I do not oh, yeah, want that's any not for part. Me. I don't want any part of equine <laughs> anesthesia in any way. So no, thank God that no. there are people who love equine anesthesia or just equine in general. Yeah. Give me a cow, a goat, a sheep. Perfect. 
I'll take a swine. Yeah, but a horse? Absolutely not. No, no, yeah. not interested. Um, no thanks. So I'm, I'm very happy about that, that there are people like you who will take the birds and I'll take the angry cats. Like, give me an angry cat all day long. Yeah. I'll take an uh, angry cat every once in a while, but I, I like the exotics. I like to stick with uh, the smaller guys. But yeah, I just love, they're just so interesting and their medicine is constantly changing for the better, which is so much fun in the 13 years I've been doing it. I've been able to see the advancement that we've had and, you know, they deserve care just as much as a cat or a dog. And that's what we do at Mount Laurel is we try to do that gold standard medicine every time. And that even goes with, you know, obviously anesthetic procedures and how can we make ourselves better. And it's been really fun to be a part of. Yeah, I agree. So Liz, this is a case-based podcast. Um, let's get into a case if that's cool with you. Um, it's totally since, cool. Since you are the bird uh, anesthesia expert right now, let's ask, here's our case. Let's say we have a 10-year-old cockatoo. Mm -hmm. And we are, you know, about to do a procedure. Uh, and then let me know if I'm pronouncing this right. Salpingo <laughs> hysterectomy? Yeah, look at you. That's great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, for some egg binding. So we need to obviously put this animal under anesthesia. Uh, we're going to work on pain control. Let's talk some, you know, talk us through how you would approach this patient you guys, you know, are you do sedation? Are you concerned about lab work and blood, you know, values? Are you looking at that? How are you managing airway if possible? What mm -hmm. do you do for pain control? So walk us kind of through how you would approach this 10-year-old cockatoo. Okay, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I've inadvertently become the bird spokesperson for parrot masturbation <laughs> on TikTok, which you know, we can't all achieve greatness, but I guess this is what the universe <laughs> has chosen for me, which is great. So this is a common case that we see a lot of the times, especially in species like cockatoos, um, because people are inappropriately touching them, interacting with them. So they become overstimulated and lay a lot more eggs than they're supposed to, um, or that they naturally would. So we see this problem a lot with the egg binding. And obviously, this can be painful. So one of the first things we want to do with this bird presenting to us is manage their pain. Now, birds are super fun. And I'm using the term fun because I think it's fun. But other people are like, God, this is why exotics are a pain in the ass. Because you have to choose the right pain management based on the specific species. So what might work in a cytosine or a parrot might not work in a kestrel. So for instance, um, in our citizens, we love butorphanol, which I'm sure all you cat dog people are like butorphanol, like God, that doesn't do shit for our patients. Um, but it does for birds because they have a high affinity for kappa receptors. Well, the butorphanol does, but birds have a lot of kappa receptors in their forebrain, um, mostly citizen. So I love to use Torb um, for them. The only hard part about butorphanol is obviously it's short onset. So it lasts about two to four hours. So you have to keep repeating that. But for our bird surgeries, we will typically run a CRI of TORB, which is great because it obviously lowers the amount of uh, gas that we need to use for them, which has been awesome. So typically when they initially present, we'll give them TORB. Uh, usually we'll pair that up with an NSAID, like meloxicam is a huge one that we use in them. So we can get that multimodal analgesia on board. If we know we're going to be doing an emergency surgery, sometimes we'll wait to do the NSAID for afterwards because just like everything else, Obviously, you know, it inhibits the cyclooxygenase. So 
We don't want to mess with renal perfusion when they're under anesthesia. For sedation purposes, right before the procedure, we'll use some midazolam. Um, we'll pair that with the loading dose of the TORB typically. And what's cool about midaz and TORB in birds is we can actually give it intranasally too, which is less invasive, less stressful. Obviously, lab work is super helpful. We want to make sure that the liver and kidneys are running uh, are appropriately prior to that. A complete CBC is always important, making sure there's no septicemia or other infection going on, depending on, you know, how long that egg has been sitting there for. Because, of course, with exotics, you know, you worry about how long that patient's actually been sick for prior to them presenting because, you know, birds, rabbits, all those things are really good at hiding and masking their signs and symptoms. So it's usually a safe assumption that they've been sick a lot longer than the owner has actually noticed those signs. And when you say a lot longer, Liz, uh, what kind of time frame are you looking? Are you saying like they may have been sick for days or they might have been sick for weeks? Oh, could have been sick for weeks. I mean, okay. egg binding, it's a little hard to tell um, because typically, you know, that can happen a little bit faster. But, you know, with most species, it could be weeks. I mean, forget it, even if you're talking about reptiles. Reptiles, it's like that started dying like six months ago. <laughs> so, you know, we always joke about that. And the reptile comes in and we think it's dead and we're, it's like, I'm not dead yet. And we're like, Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, birds, people always say like, Oh, you look at them and they just die, but it's usually safe to say that they've been sick for a long period of time. And by the time they start showing that lethargy or that they're fluffed or that they're not perching, it, it's been some time. Cause they're just like, Oh, I can't like, can't do this anymore. I gotta like pretend now I can't pretend anymore. I'm sick. Like I, I have to show that I'm sick. Uh, but it's usually to avoid predation in the wild. So that's why they do that. I mean, it makes total sense. And then probably they're so sick. And then by the time they get into us, probably just the stress of being handled and yeah. with us can push them over the edge. I mean, I know I've just I've seen that in other species, too. So that's a great point. And that plays a role in how we treat them initially is we make sure that we have all of our treatments together. We make sure we know our plan before we pick the bird up, because that stress of just us handling them um, it's actually called uh, myopathy. The oh God, why can't I think of it now? Capture myopathy. There it <laughs> yeah. is. Capture um, myopathy. We want to avoid that. So that's why we kind of make our plan ahead of time before we even handle the patient. And then um, after we're sedated, we use a little bit of, you know, in this hospital, we use SIBO. I do prefer SIBO as an inhalant over most other inhalants just because it's not as irritating and they go down a lot faster. They wake up a lot faster. So it's, a I like it personally. I've used ISO too, but SIBO is probably my favorite. Getting an airway is always a necessity with birds when you're putting them in under general anesthesia. Their respiratory system is super advanced, which is great for them, you know, when they're flying and their high metabolism and things like that. But when they're under anesthesia, it's definitely not functioning appropriately. Uh, even when you see them breathing under anesthesia, you still should be providing intermittent positive pressure ventilation just so that they're to avoid hypercapnia. Uh, that's usually one of the main reasons why they'll go into cardiac arrest, too, is from hypercapnia. So uh, we have a cute little ventilator here, which has been a godsend of doing years of anesthesia <laughs> without it. With And my thumb is like getting blisters from... <laughs> pushing on the little bag. So now we have a really awesome ventilator, which I always was terrified to use, but now I'm like obsessed with it. And I'm like, put it on the vent. Yeah, um, that is a nice ventilator. You guys out there in podcast land, I have seen this ventilator and had my hands on it. It is actually really nice. 
to have that ventilator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Hollowell little ventilator. It's uh, it's the bee's knees. And then at the same time that we're monitoring, we also use the vet quarter. That's one of my favorite products. I mean, I come from a world, I'm going to sound like an old person. I'm like, back in my day, we just used a Doppler and we just put it on the vein. And then if we couldn't hear it during the procedure, we just prayed it was alive when we were done. But yeah, now that's, that's, we have... <laughs> that's about right. <laughs> yep, that's how it was. And now we have the vet quarter, which comes with ECG leads. So it comes with uh, needles that we, you can hook up so that you can actually get a good ECG on these guys. You can, it also comes with a pulse ox. Um, and then it also comes with a temperature probe. I mean, we, so we can use it esophag- like down their esophagus or we can use it in their cloaca. Um, I will say using it down the esophagus is, uh, you know, more accurate. Um, blood pressures are indirect blood pressures on birds are a little bit tougher, uh, just because if it's not a bigger species, it's obviously not as accurate. So sometimes with these guys, we just look at trends more than anything. And we're using a lot of heat support. I prefer bear huggers personally. I think that they provide enough heat support for these guys whose temperatures are naturally like 103 can go up to 106 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's really important to prevent them from getting hypothermia it's pretty much like monitoring a cat or a dog at this point, which is pretty awesome. I would say we've gotten really far. Oh, and of course, don't smack me. I forgot something really important. And title uh, <laughs> is obviously super important too. I was waiting for you to beat me over that. Well, I was going to um, ask uh, if you were uh, using no. the vet quarter end title, or if you had a, a different end title unit that you use for these guys. We, so it's from them, but it's called an airmate. So we use the right, side the stream vein. for them. The yep. Vein. So it is made by them and it has been another one of my favorite tools that I use for them. There was a study in African grays that says that their normal end title should be anywhere between 35 to 45. However, depending on the size of the patient, because of course in exotics world, cool, we did that study on African grays, but now what is it in Moluccan cockatoos? What is it in lovebirds? So you have to kind of play that game of looking at trends and, you know, Obviously, if you're not getting a good value, you want to do your normal where you're checking the machine, you're making sure that the uh, ET tube doesn't have a mucus plug. So you want to do your normal checks if that happens. But um, yeah, it's been really cool to watch exotics medicine, especially avian anesthesia evolve into what it is now and call me crazy. But uh, avian anesthesia is actually my favorite out of all of them. Besides, you know, rabbits I could do without. No, thank you. Um, But (laughs) birds I I will put a bird under anesthesia any day so yeah I'm not I'm probably not mentally right but uh who are any of us is the question oh no I don't think I think veterinary (laughs) medicine you have to be a little bit uh you're off we're a little off definitely yeah but that's okay that's fine we're cool yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um so let's go back to you talking about you know getting that airway um Mm -hmm. walk us through how you're intubating a bird I think a lot of people be a lot uh, very intimidated by this is it difficult? What kind of things do you have to consider as far as your tubes? Are you using a laryngoscope, a, a light? Walk us through that. Yeah. So honestly, it's one of the easiest things you can do. It is way easier, in my opinion, than a cat, than a ferret. Certainly way more easy than a rabbit. But basically uh, what I do, and now in exotics world too, you have to remember what I do might not work for somebody else. And so you kind of have to figure out, do it a couple of times and figure out what works for you. As long as there's patient safety and, you know, everybody is, you, you can make it work, then it should be fine. But basically for birds, the most important thing to remember is that they have complete cartilaginous rings around their tracheas. 
So this basically means that they're more prone to strictures and damage. So it's important to always know that you should never use a cuff tube for them ever. So what we use are coal tubes. And basically, they're a little bit thinner or, or smaller in diameter at the tip, and then they kind of expand. So you're going to intubate up to the point where it expands. And that expansion of that tube is going to essentially act like your cuff. So it's going to seal the end of the trachea so that you're not getting any leakage. So for like a big bird, like a Moluccan cockatoo, I would probably use somewhere like a four size, a three and a half to a four size cold tube. I'm having my assistant open the beak so that I can visualize it. And basically, for lack of a better term, I mean, it looks like a vagina at the base of the tongue. I know that sounds really weird, but I'm telling you, you'll look at it and be like, oh, yeah, it does look like a vagina. Great. I'm glad she said that. <laughs> I'm lubing the tube like normal, and I'm just gently inserting it up into the point, like I said, where it kind of expands in diameter. And the most important thing, too, is to know that you should have made a bite block prior to this. Birds, obviously, they have a lot of uh, pressure when it comes to their bites. So it's important to, I usually make my bite blocks out of like uh, tongue depressors or Q-tips and I wrap them in vet wrap. And so after I intubate and I am using a light, I don't typically have to use a laryngoscope. I just use one of those overhead lights that shine from behind my back. Um, after I intubate, I already have my bite block ready. And the fun process is taping. I always try to video myself doing it and it looks like, is this this girl's first day? Um, but basically I intubate, I put the bite block in and I wrap one piece of like really thin tape around the tube. And then I basically go around the bite block on both sides. And then I'm going around the rhinotheca and then uh, ramphotheca, which is the top beak and the bottom beak all at once. So I kind of do this fun little thing where I'm doing, you know, around the tube first to secure that around the bite block and then around the beak to secure it. If it's a smaller bird, sometimes I'll go around the back of the head. But if it's a big enough bird with a big enough beak, then I'm able to secure it just on the beak, which is nice. Obviously, leaving some space for, you know, the um, temperature probe and for the end title. But besides that, that's pretty much how you do it. I will say it depends on the bird species again, because I haven't really touched. We're obviously talking about a cytosine here, but it varies. You have things like waterfowl, you know, which requires sometimes a bigger tube. They have a dive reflex. So they'll stop breathing. Um, so it's really important to focus on the exact species that you're working with and not just like all birds at once. Yeah, that's definitely important to note. I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, working in the only six months I was at the Wild Bird Center, there were definitely huge differences in dealing with the like pelican versus mm -hmm. dealing with the uh, osprey or the, um, oh, what were the ones that I loved the best? Cormorants. The cormorants. Oh, uh, cormorants are only great. Only because like <laughs> they were kind of like little assholes, but also like they just yeah, have like, great mean, personalities. But they would definitely cut you uh, very quickly. Oh yeah. Uh, if I mean, you tried to, to restrain. Say, yeah, it's safe to say that all birds are little assholes for the most part. Either that or they're masturbating on you. So it's like one or the other, which is like mm -hmm. great. But it's really important to get to know the exact species that you're working with because there are huge differences. Like. We don't use buprenorphine in our citizens, but there have been studies to say that buprenorphine will work in pigeons and American kestrels. So that can be a part of their pain management. And then um, for this case, we would probably stick with the tord and the midazolam. And then once they wake up, we might stick with something like if it's being hospitalized, which typically they are, 
um, we'll switch to something like tramadol injectable that we're, we have in the hospital, which is great. And um, tramadol helps with bird pain in the sense that they have, it has the SSRI properties to it, which seems to work well for them. And that way we're not picking them up as much because tramadol will last about six to eight hours in them. Um, and we'll add an inset in there like meloxicam to help again, round out that multimodal analgesia for them, because this is a very intense procedure for them, which is why most places don't do them. But I've done probably I've helped with over probably like 50 of them. So we've had a lot of experience in what do's and don'ts work. Oh, something cool that I do want to mention really quick about and monitoring end title for birds sometimes. So for this specific procedure, something that we found is we have to enter the abdominal air sac to get to the ovaries. And when we do that, we're not able to read the end title anymore because of the way the respiratory system works. And we also have to stop using the ventilator at that time as well. So we'll usually switch over because the air sac is opened up. It's not able to hold that pressure. So the ventilator's like, nah, I can't do this. And that's something that we found uh, is the difference when we're using ventilators and stuff. But we can still breathe for them. It's just the ventilator is a no-go for that. So that's something to definitely be aware of if you're going to tackle this type of procedure. Um, but yeah, and then it'll be hospitalized for a couple days. And we're, you know, still continuing opioids and NSAIDs. And, you know, usually we're doing some uh, antibacterial treatment as well. And hopefully they end up being good to go. And yeah, it's uh, super fun. Also, we can't take out their ovaries. So that's why it's called a salpingo hysterectomy. Technically, we still do some hormonal therapy after that as well. But their ovaries are associated with a lot of vasculature. So they're at risk for life-threatening hemorrhage if we attempt to do that. So we're technically only taking out the oviducts and the uterus. Okay. So that's a fun fact too. So um, kind of like just two kind of final questions. Um, mm-hmm. For in that kind of inner, in that immediate recovery period, how yeah. do you know, you know, kind of like with dogs and cats, we look for return of palpebral reflex, a swallow reflex, these kind of things. What kind of signs are you looking for in birds to know that they are ready to be, you know, extubated and on their own and, and a yeah. good in recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So birds usually will like to wake up quick once they've been off of gas anesthesia for some time. And typically we will reverse the midazolam if that's something that we use as a pre-med, which most of the time we do. Uh, One of the first signs that I see that they're waking up appropriately is that they'll start shaking or shivering. And again, it's really important to keep them on that heat support. Like we're keeping them on that bear hugger until they're basically screaming at us. When they start to shiver and shake, that's something that I know, okay, they're waking up palpebral reflexes are another really good one. And then they'll start vocalizing a lot. So once they start vocalizing and moving their beaks, um, usually is when I'll go ahead and extubate them and they're breathing on their own, obviously is another big one too. And you want to make sure they're taking those nice deep breaths. I like to keep the capnograph on them as long as possible. Cause obviously if we still don't have them actually hooked up to oxygen, you know, we want to make sure that they're respirating appropriately and we're getting a good pulse ox, we're getting a good end title. Um, but typically it's a little tough because there are a lot of times when they're like up and I'm like, oh, excavate, excavate, excavate <laughs> before it gets to that point. We're like usually untaping very carefully the tube because now you have all this tape hooked up to the bite block and do not remove the bite block before you excavate for them and reptiles. I have learned my lesson many times and I've had more bearded (laughs) dragons bite and ET tubes than anything. And then I'm like, take out the ET tube, take it out, take it out, take it out. And we're all yelling at each other and (laughs) we're sitting there and 
Yeah, it's to avoid that drama. It's, you know, important to take them all out at the same time so that they're not running the risk of biting the tube. And then you have a whole new set of problems that you don't want to deal with. But yeah, and then we go ahead and we put them in oxygen usually afterwards. So we put them in a Snyder cage with oxygen and heat. So for a cytosine, like a cockatoo, we would put them at like 80 to 85 degrees in that incubator and just kind of make sure that they're ambulating appropriately and they're able to be sternal and sit up on their own before we leave them alone. So uh, we're recovering them for some time before we walk away from that patient. Okay. Final question for people who are maybe just getting started, but have a big interest in exotics or zoo med or that kind of thing. uh, What advice do you have for them to kind of break into that area of vet med veterinary technology? Yeah, this is like the biggest question I get on TikTok, like all the time, people are like, how did you do this? (laughs) Basically, I always tell them to just do whatever you can, like, if you have the ability to do an internship, like, so I started out, I did an internship at Philly Zoo, they offer most zoos will offer amazing internships where you can work with the exotic species that you want, learn a different aspect of the field. Like I take a lot of things that I learned from the zoo field, and I apply it today to the species that I work with. You can volunteer at a wildlife refuge if you want to, you know, work with some wildlife in this area. You can shadow or get a job as an assistant, or especially if you're in college and you can only do part-time. Like I have a lot of people that have started working with us during their winter breaks, during their summer breaks as assistants so that they can be in the department and kind of get that beginning experience of handling and restraint and just learning about their husbandry and things like that. So anything from internships to jobs, we know everybody's looking for techs right now. Yeah. Finding a reputable place that sees exotics, that can be a little hard because a lot of places will say like, oh, we see them, but they they usually will just see them for wellnesses or small stuff. So it's important to find a reputable hospital. You can Google or look up any hospitals that have boarded exotic vets, which are helpful. There's a lot of them all over the country. They're, they can be boarded in avian, reptile and amphibian or small mammal. Uh, But those are a good place to start, too, so you can learn from boarded people and really get that good work experience if you want to get involved with that. My internship saved me. I think that was it because you can also network that way, too. Yeah, I think those would be the best places to start. All right. That sounds great. So you heard it here, kids. If you want to do exotics, get on the Google, find your local (laughs) uh, wildlife zoo or boarded practitioner and get involved as any way you can. If people want to hear more from you particular, Liz, um, where can they go? You're on TikTok. Let us know about that. Yeah. Um, so my TikTok name is Liz Vet Exotics Tech. I get a lot of people on there asking me a bunch of questions. So that's a good place to find me. I'm on Facebook, Liz Vetrano. You can find me that way. Yeah, those are the probably the two best places. I get a lot of private messages through you know, my Instagram too, it peaches the Moluccan cockatoos, but I'm not on there as much, but that's no, no. And we're not in TikTok. No. And I'm just going to say right now, we're not going to advocate that people just private message you on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Good. Yeah. No, no, no. We can go to your TikTok. Like TikTok is made for, you know, um, you guys have probably already seen some of her TikToks. Uh, because they're just so fantastic and fun and uh, very educational. Um, so I would definitely, we'll put a, a link actually to Liz and her TikTok on the, in the show notes for today's uh, show. And as always, Liz, thank you so much for, you know, hanging out and teaching me some bird things. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back on the program to talk maybe 
um, more bird stuff or even maybe some bearded dragon stuff because, you know, there's certainly some intimidation when it comes to reptiles, too. So we'll have to get some more information on that. Mine's more of impatience from them not waking up. But yes, uh, intimidation. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. All right. Thanks so much, Liz. And thank you guys for listening. I hope you have a good day uh, in your clinics.